What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. So it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Elbridge Colby is the co-founder and principal of the Marathon Initiative, a policy initiative focused on developing strategies to prepare the United States for an era of sustained great power competition. He is the author of The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict, which the Wall Street Journal selected as one of the top 10 books of 2021. Earlier in his career, Colby served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development from 2017 to 2018 as well. In this conversation, we talk about the threat from China, what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, what exactly is happening with Hamas and Israel, how this all feeds into the economic strength of America, whether private sector companies like Andrew and others can actually make a dent in our military readiness, and what Eldbridge thinks is actually on the table for what America could do right now to put us in a better position in a geopolitical global world. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you guys enjoy it as well. Here is my conversation with Elbridge Colby. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Today's episode is brought to you by Trust and Will. I've gone through a number of different changes in my life over the last few years. I got married, I had a kid, and I had to start thinking about how could I ensure that my wife and my child would be okay if anything ever happened to me. That's where trust, wills, and estate planning come into play. Now, most people, what they do is they get introduced to a friend, an uncle, or someone in their local community. It tends to be someone who's really expensive, a lawyer, an accountant, or somebody who does estate planning, and they just simply are using a one-size-fits-all template and just telling you, pay me thousands of dollars, and I'll use the same thing for you as the guy down the street. But that's not what Trust and Will does. They have a trusted online estate planning product that starts as low as $159, which allows you to now protect your legacy from the comfort of your own home. Get to leverage their excellent customer support available via phone, email, or chat. They have thousands of five-star reviews and a rating of excellent on Trustpilot. It takes most people 20 to 30 minutes to complete their estate plan with Trust and Will. And not only that, but if you go to trustandwill.com pomp, You'll get 10% off, plus you'll get free shipping of all your estate planning documents. So go to trustandwill.com slash pomp and make sure you get an estate plan in place. Whether it's for you or one of your loved ones, having a trust and or a will can literally be the difference between someone being taken care of and someone not. Go check them out today at trustandwill.com slash pomp. This episode is brought to you by Aradine. They are a brand new startup led by a number of Silicon Valley legends who just raised $81 million to build the future of internet infrastructure. You're probably wondering what that means, so let me explain. There are numerous new disruptive technologies that are being adopted simultaneously, from blockchain to artificial intelligence to zero-knowledge technologies. In order to ensure that these technologies thrive in this new world, we need new infrastructure, and that is where Aradine comes in. They just launched their first product line called Terraflux, which is a Bitcoin miner powered by the world's first four nanometer silicon chip technology. These air-cooled, single-phase and dual-phase immersion cooling miners have unrivaled speed and efficiency. They have superior uptime, and they leverage a brand new innovation called Energy Tune that allows miners to dynamically adjust the energy consumption and Bitcoin hash rate based on demand response needs of the electrical grids. Aradine is an ambitious company working on hard problems. I'm really impressed with them. And if you want to check out more, you can go to Aradine.com. That's A-U-R-A-D-I-N-E.com. Go check them out at Aradine.com today. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Elbridge here with me. Uh, Bridge, I I thought a great place for us to get started is all eyes are on the current events of the Ukraine-Russia conflict and now Hamas and Israel. Um, How much of our attention should be focused there 
in what I would consider kind of short-term immediate conflict versus this long-term trade-off, which appears China playing this long-term game, potentially Taiwan being you know part of that equation. And, and the United States almost has this tension between short-term versus long-term. You seem to have a very different opinion than most people on, on where we should be focused. Yeah, well, thanks, Anthony, and great, great to be with you and your your listeners. I, I think you're, I think you're right. Um, I mean, look, I think we should support our close ally Israel, and I think you know we're going to have to remain engaged in Europe in, in some way. But by far the most significant challenge to American interests, I mean, the first peer economy in 150 years, the United States is China. Uh, if you measure it by market exchange, we're still quite a bit bigger. But if you use purchasing power parity, which is a better metric for understanding you know military power, for instance, China may already be larger than we are. They have for instance, 200 times the shipbuilding capacity, and that's according to the Office of Naval Intelligence. So what's going on right now? Um, look, I think it pays to be a little bit um, sus suspicious and maybe a, a paranoid, as Henry Kissinger said, even the paranoid have enemies. Honestly, what's looking to me like what's happening is, um, uh, or, or what I would say is, cui bono? Who benefits from the current situation? Well, I think you could make arguments about Iran. You can certainly make arguments that Russia benefits by distracting American attention away from Europe. But even more than Russia, I think China benefits. Why is that? Well, I mean, it, to kind of get down to the point, I think there's a very real risk of a war between the United States and China centered on Taiwan, but not exclusively about Taiwan. In fact, much more consequential in the coming years. And I think the only way that China is going to achieve its stated, basically, or implicitly discernible goals of regional hegemony over Asia, the world's largest market area, essentially dominance of the world's largest market area, is I think through military force. And I'm happy to unpack that. And I think it's very important for market participants to understand that because there's a tendency to think that that's like so too dramatic and doesn't really rack up and it's not economically rational. I actually think that's not not necessarily true. It's, it's TBD, but I actually think the way that China is behaving and, and the statement it's saying and its military buildup are more consistent with the behavior of traditionally of rising great powers, which seek to use military force to achieve what I think of as a secure geoeconomic sphere, basically a very large market area for their companies, their industries to have scale, which you know matters as much now as it did 100 years ago. If that's the case, and if it comes down to military power, China benefits enormously if the United States is depleted and distracted in other theaters. And we've already depleted our stockpiles a great deal aiding Ukraine. Look, Ukraine is a just cause. It's a self-defense against a, an evil aggression. But we have to look at things realistically. I mean, the way I think about our foreign policies, it should be thought of more as like a business uh, than a kind of a, a charity cause, right? And so you have to think of it in a kind of a fiduciary way. And we're not prepared to deal with the multi-front problem. And we've used a lot of our weapons, a lot of money, a lot of political will in Ukraine. Now we're going to be enmeshed potentially in the crisis in the Middle East, hopefully not directly involved. I think we should try to avoid that if at all possible uh, for, for you know, the reasons I'm explaining here. But the, the biggest shoe has yet to drop. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the size 14 compared to much smaller shoes, um, which is the potential for the Chinese to move. And here's a critical thing. The Chinese are going to give us as little warning as humanly possible if they go in that direction, because if you're going to launch an invasion against Taiwan and strike at the Americans, you don't want to give us warning to flush our forces and disperse them and make them more capable. So I think that's the real danger. And you know, if I if I put the, the points together on a graph, what's most consistent is that China benefits. I'm not saying China plotted what Hamas is doing, but I'm saying I, I, I surmise, I infer that Hamas has read the room, if you will, of not only Iran, but Russia and China saying this kind of thing is going to be welcomed. When we look at this scenario. I think there are a multitude of different directions that we could kind of go in. Uh, you know, we can talk about Russia, Ukraine. We can talk about Israel. We can talk about China. We can talk about the southern border. We can talk about the economics. Like, th there's so much to unpack here. But maybe what we could actually dig in on to to kind of have people understand what the end game would be. China actually invading Taiwan. What does that look like? And what would the potential U.S. response be in that scenario? Well, I think the end game is not just taking over Taiwan. People tend to focus on on uh, China's ambitions about Taiwan because it's considered a lost province because of the Chinese Civil War and so forth and so on. That is all true, but that's actually not the deepest reality, which is China basically needs to take over Taiwan to be able to break out of what's called the first island chain formed by the Japanese archipelago, Taiwan itself and the Philippines. So that's been a barrier 
to Chinese or Soviet power since the end of the Second World War that the United States has held to. So China needs to be able to do that. China needs to also, if it's going to achieve that secure geoeconomic sphere that I was talking about, uh, which they believe that we are trying to constrain and strangle their future economic development, bear that in mind, that's what Xi Jinping himself is indicating. And that's certainly consistent with their government behavior. If China is going to do that, it needs to break apart this, this anti-hegemonic coalition that I think of that's not a formal thing like an Asian NATO. It's rather a mental model of what's happening with our alliance building um, in, in Asia, Japan, India, Philippines, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, et cetera, Vietnam. Um, so that's what's going on. If China is going to do that, though, it's going to go after Taiwan because Taiwan is the first step. And they have the strongest case because they have a very well-established political claim. I'm not, we don't acknowledge it, but most countries recognize or kind of acknowledge Taiwan as being part of China. What's that going to look like? A lot of people say, well, China will boil a frog. They'll use peaceful means. They'll use so-called disinformation. I don't like that term, but that kind of thing. Well, I actually don't think that's what they're ultimately going to do. In fact, they've been partially because they've been doing that for the last 25 years. And not only has it not succeeded, it's backfired. China is basically in a, a, like Taiwan has moved farther and farther away from China over time and is heading in the direction of really a kind of a settled status quo of, of, of informal independence and even the possibility of formal independence, which I certainly oppose, but we oppose uh, as, as, a, as a country. It, so, so if you're in Beijing and you're thinking, well, maybe Taiwan will one day, you know, will convince the people on Taiwan to vote to become public, part of the People's Republic. There's like zero chance of that, especially after what they saw ha happen in Hong Kong and how things are in the mainland. No, no, no. Okay, Chinese can see that. If they see that, what's their option? Military force. If you're going to use military force, well, basically you're going to do it right, which means you're not going to do probably do a blockade. A blockade can be part of an operation. Problem with the blockade is it basically forfeits the element of surprise I was referring to before and forfeits your ability to up the go up the escalation ladder and say, I'm going to solve this problem. And I think a big lesson, I'm sure, I, I would bet a lot of money, I'm not sure, but I bet a lot of money that Chinese are, are drawing from Russia's experience in Ukraine is don't mess around, go big or go home. And if you're going to go big, don't give a lot of warning. So, I, But not only are they probably going to attack Taiwan, but they are going to have to attack US forces in the region and probably Japanese as well, because they're not going to want to leave themselves vulnerable, which is going to mean it's going to look something more like December 1941 than people probably appreciate. Now, let's say that uh, they were able to uh, successfully invade Taiwan and essentially establish some level of control. Is the U.S. response to then go and try to take Taiwan back? Or is it something where, you know, whoever gets there first kind of, you know, is able to put the flag in the ground and it's over before it even started? I think, unfortunately, it's going to be very, very difficult to take Taiwan back if the Chinese have secured control. It's not impossible in the sense that you could over time cut off. Um, uh, you know, China's ability to, for instance, sustain its forces on the island if you gained air and sea control in the area around, or at least uh, not necessarily control, but advantage, which would be extremely difficult because the Chinese can operate from their, their mainland territory. I think if Taiwan falls, this is why that why I focus a lot, like in my book and in my work in the Pentagon on the, on the so-called fait accompli, which is just, I mean, I think most people are familiar with, from, from, with it from everyday life, but it's basically the strategy of creating new facts on the ground before people can get really mobilized. And that's in military terms, but it can be a business strategy. It can be in, in a lot of different walks of life. Um, uh, and then and then kind of basically convincing them it's not worth uh, going to the cost and risk of reversing it. So I think if Taiwan falls, we may we may get to that point. Unfortunately, I increasingly am afraid that our lack of preparedness and urgency, Taiwan's own lack of preparedness and urgency, Japan's slow pace are leading to a situation in which it may become untenable, if not impossible, to defend Taiwan. Which, would, But that, the, the, the key thing here, Anthony, is that the situation is going to be more grave and urgent and extreme if that happens. Why? Because China's goals are not merely limited to unification with Taiwan. I mean, they're talking about becoming the globally preeminent country and da 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 And I think it's a pretty reason, very reasonable inference to suggest their ambitions go far more. Far beyond, for instance, their military force development clearly envisions using military forces well beyond Taiwan. And that's a very costly signal of what their future intent is likely to look like. And so in that case, I think we're going to have to really like double, triple down on Asia, because in that context, people in like Japan, the Philippines and Hanoi, Australia are going to say, wait a minute, I was prepared to stick my neck out to work with the Americans to balance China. 
because I thought it was prudent. I thought they were the big dog. But now it looks like China's actually the big dog. Maybe I'd better cut a deal. And that's going to be, that's human nature. It's only rational. And that's going to be a very, very difficult thing to push against in that context. So that's a lot of the urgency is why I'm trying to say, look, let's not let, I mean, I know this is more commercial audience, but in the policy world, I'm really saying we got to focus on Taiwan because if we lose it, it's only going to get worse. I think implicitly in a lot of people's mind, there's an idea that if Taiwan falls, the Chinese will kind of stop there. And I just don't think that comports with either their behavior or human nature. What is the impact of something like that on financial markets, on global trade? You know, obviously people focus very much on the superconductors and TSMC, but but there's obviously other impact as well. How, how do you think about, okay, if China was successful here, how does America respond from an economic standpoint and, and what would investors need to be paying attention to? I think it has enormous ramifications for commercial people of all kinds. And I think people, um, I think the semiconductor issue is helpful in kind of local, in, in, in concretizing that, but it's, it's way beyond semiconductors. Just to be clear, I would not defend Taiwan just for semiconductors, like better to offshore and figure it out and maybe go on rather than risk World War III. The problem is it's much more than that because I think, again, going back to what does China really want and what do rising great powers tend to want is that secure geoeconomic sphere. What does that mean for market actors? It means the center of the economic world is no longer the United States. It's no longer New York City and Silicon Valley and regulators in Washington. It's China, it's Beijing, it's Shanghai, it's Wuhan, it's Guangzhou, whatever, you know? That is, that is the, it's Hong Kong, that is the future that China wants. Why not? Why wouldn't they want that? That's pretty awesome. Then you have, you know, basically your regular, your standards become common. Your companies get favored in commercial uh, flows. You get the scale advantages of selling to the world's largest market. You get to use sanctions. I mean, we go around and we throw sanctions on Swiss banks and yada, yada, yada. And they all have to, they have to fall in line. Why? Because you can't afford to get blocked out of the American market or, or be prevented from using the dollar. That's the future I think the Chinese are ultimately trying to supplant us from. And if they seize Taiwan, that's a major step. It's not the end of the story, I don't think, but it's, the story is going to be a lot sadder and more difficult at that point. But that's the future that, and I think you can basically see that because people talk about decoupling, like the Chinese are already de- trying to decouple from us and they're trying to create a parallel economy. They're trying to basically, you know, I mean, we're starting to see de-dollarization. I know there's a lot of debate about the dollar and exactly, you know, the downsides of the Chinese to using reserve currency now. Okay, fine. But the point is over the long period of time, I think that's the world they want to create. If you're a market actor and you're assuming that Alphabet and Apple and Meta are going to be the biggest companies in the world. If China is dominant over Asia, I don't think that's true anymore because Chinese companies become the dominant one because they get preference in, say, selling into the ASEAN market, right, which is going to be the world's largest areas of growth is is the Asian markets, potentially India, Japan, et cetera, right? And the Chinese will, will use that to disfavor our companies and to shrink us. And then ultimately, they may become subsidiaries of of those Chinese companies. And so that's the future. This ultimately, and this is one of the reasons I, I really uh, I'll try to reach out to the commercial community is that ultimately the stakes here are economic, but the means that China would use to pursue that goal are substantially military in nature. If I was to have this conversation with you five years ago, I think that the uh, kind of economic an investment community would tell you invest in China. It's fast growing. It has all this opportunity. You know, get down the trend of growth, and uh, the returns will follow. In the last couple of months, it seems like there's data coming out that growth is actually not as fast or as big as uh, previously thought. Uh, there has been a number of issues in the debt markets and the real estate markets. There's been collapse of very large companies. There have been uh, executives who have been you know either surveilled or kind of taken under control of the CCP, etc. How do you think about China's kind of economic, you know, positioning today versus maybe what the promise or, or the thought process was, you know, three to five years ago? Well, look, it's interesting. I mean, from a strategic point of view, I think we have to, it's almost like not reached that issue in the sense that I think we have to prepare for the downside risk from a strategic point of view of continued Chinese growth. So like, I don't, I don't make predictions. Um, that said, you know, kind of from a market point of view and just kind of getting into a, leaning forward a little bit on the issue, I personally think that China is not about to fall apart. I don't see the evidence for that. I see China slowing down. I mean, I see them, you know, probably meeting the frontier in some areas. They've got structural issues with misallocation of capital and so forth. But on the other hand, you know, there's an enormous and in, in, in substantial uh, extent, untapped human capital potential in China that's not at the frontier. I mean, maybe in Shanghai, they're at the frontier, but like, this is not Japan. This is not a country 
that you know in 1991 was at like top OECD levels. So they have a lot of headroom for growth. And frankly, some of what they're doing, I mean, the fact that they're not doubling down on the property sector, and I'm not an expert on this, might actually be good because it would just like inflate the problem further. Um, so, and and the other thing is I tend to be a bit more dovish on economic measures. So again, this is stems, the, the, the ultimate stakes, what, what we in China are ultimately in rivalry about is money, is because money is what makes the world go round, but also it's what creates geopolitical and military strength. But at the end of the day, as Mao Zedong put it, power comes out of the barrel of a gun, right? So the guy with the gun will dominate the guy with the dollar. Now you need the, you need the dollar to get the gun, but at the end of the day, right? And so because I don't, that's linked my sense, and this not just because I focus on this issue, I've become increasingly convinced of this. The gun is dominant because economic sanctions don't coerce people very well. It's very difficult to use money to basically get people to do things that they really don't want to do. You know, you can induce people to do things on the margin that they don't want to do, maybe kind of nudge them. But our experience with sanctions, including against the Russians, is they really don't work. So that's true of the Chinese, but it's also true of us. So what that means is I'm not as worried about building up economic sanctions because I actually don't think it's going to coerce China. Like if China invades Taiwan and conquers Taiwan, First of all, I'm very skeptical that we would put massive sanctions on them because it would, it would like potentially blow up our own economy. But secondly, I don't think it would coerce the Chinese anyway. And by the way, I don't think the Europeans and the Middle Easterners and the Latins would go along, let alone the Russians would go along with it. But what that means is that means I'm actually less, I put less pressure on decoupling. Now I'm, 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 sent, I'm, I'm, um, receptive or supportive of decoupling for our own reasons on our own terms. But that's different than saying it's necessary for our strategy. So what I would say for a market point of view is if you think you can, I mean, I basically I focus on don't contribute to the Chinese military buildup and we need to decouple on things that we really can't afford the Chinese to be able to like have a stranglehold, pharmaceuticals, you know, semiconductors, et cetera. Okay, so that's a relatively narrow set of things. Otherwise, from my point of view, from a strategic point of view, people can go in there. Point taken that there's more risk there just in terms of how the Chinese economy is doing. But I would just be, you know, my advice is to say, look, that's me. I'm a kind of a realist. I try to look at things dispassionately. But if we get in a war with China, which is very possible, and tens of thousands, possibly more Americans are getting killed, how much do you want your business plan and your investment, you know, future to rely on China? I mean, I would put a heavy discount on that. So if there's something really lucrative or short term, that's not going to get you crosswise. That's one thing. But if there's, you know, if you're hoping that just things are going to be fine, I really don't think that's a very prudent investment. So you were very, very uh, involved in creating some of the changes in what I'll call our defense or geopolitical strategy. Um, what is your evaluation of America's readiness, uh, both as a government from a strategic standpoint, but also from a warfighting capability standpoint, if we were 100% focused on being able to address this issue? So if we didn't have uh, Ukraine and Russia, we didn't have Hamas and Israel, how ready are we for this at the current moment? We're not, as far as I can tell. I mean, it's all relative and it's a matter of degree, but you know, in, in a conventional war, um, you know, the old expression for want of a shoe, the kingdom was lost. You can have outsized effects because of relatively marginal advantages in uh, capability or position or other things. So, you know, the example of actually the Anglo-French, I mean, the French army was considered the best military in Europe in 1940, but the Germans proved to be better. They actually had fewer, I believe they had a smaller number of troops, at least total mobilized for the offensive in the Battle of France. I'm not exactly sure, but but basically they were able to break through in some key areas and uh, the Battle of, I think, around Sedan and then crossing some of the rivers in northern France. And that led to a collapse in the Anglo-French position um, with with enormous strategic consequences that that are far greater than like the narrow issue of the battle. And so that's that's very important. And that's what really I think our strategy, we kind of know what, our, for instance, the Biden administration's defense strategy is quite similar from what I understand to our strategy, defense strategy in the Trump administration that really shifted us to focus on China. And warfighting readiness for deterrence. So I don't, I don't think we don't have like a strategy problem at this point. I mean, we do have a strategy problem in the sense that like we need to really, really focus. But like what we're saying on the on the words on the paper is not the big problem. The big problem is the level of effort and concentration. And that's what sort of a big part of what I'm doing now is it's less like very theoretical stuff and more like like focus, focus, focus. Because 
you know, you said something interesting, Anthony, which is, you know, if Hamas weren't a problem, if Ukraine weren't a problem, I don't think we can wait for these areas to be settled, to be stable, because it probably is never going to happen. And also that obviously leads to an incentive, which is probably what's happening right now, to go to your original question, that Beijing and Moscow are trying to use conflagrations in these regions to tie us down and deplete us in this, in what for China is the central theater. And of course, China is the key actor. Russia wouldn't be able to support its war effort if its economy weren't being propped up by Beijing, by China. So I think this is the issue. And I mean, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy, I mean, President Biden, and I, this is true of, of many Republicans too, so this is not a partisan comment, but President Biden said, um, you know, in mid-October on 60 Minutes that, you know, we're America, we can do all these things. We can support Israel and Ukraine and everything else. And I was thinking to myself, like, you and what army? I mean, if you look at the budget, I mean, our defense spending is historic lows, and I'm not saying that it's realistic to expect us to dramatically increase defense spending in these contexts, but very little has been done to fundamentally change our defense industrial base. Our allies are moving slowly, if at all, with a couple of exceptions like Poland, um, to some extent, Japan, Australia. Um, so like the accounts are not adding up. And I always, to go back to my point about running things like a business, what business is successful? I mean, I'm not a business, you know, I'm, I've never run a business, but like, I thought it was pretty standard management practice that you pick a priority and you make sure that that's what you hit. Maybe you have, maybe you have two or three priorities max, but you really make sure you hit those things and you do it right. And you don't, you don't take major, major risk. And that's what's basically happening is we're doing good things in Asia, but it's more like moving, let's say, let's call it like a 30 degree angle. Meantime, China's military buildup is up like this. I don't know what that would be, like an 80 degree angle. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, uh, you know, it's like if, if you're, if you, you know, if you're a salesman in a company and, and you say, Hey, I, hey boss, I doubled my, my sales from last year, but your boss says, well, your competitor, uh, is doing 10 X. That's, uh, that you're not doing well enough because it's all relative. And that's the fundamental problem. And especially when you, when I think that Xi Jinping and Beijing have a lot of reasons for movement in this decade, if not sooner, I don't make predictions. I don't know what's in Xi Jinping's head, but they're actively exercising their military and trying to fix problems that they know they have. There's reason for them to think that if they wait around too long, the American military and, and the Japanese and Taiwanese military will get a lot stronger. Xi Jinping himself, who has elevated the Taiwan issue a lot, is not immortal. He's a Marxist. So like that's a given. And they can see this coalition forming around them. So they they appear to me to be behaving like a country that's getting ready to try to deliver us a knockout blow. Again, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I mean, my basic view is anybody who says he or she does know is not very credible because nobody should claim to know because Xi Jinping's not sharing that information with anybody. And if he is, we're not sure he's telling us the truth. Now, how do private companies like Anduril and others that appear to, uh, one, take a different approach to kind of building out some of this military industrial base, uh, two, seem to be doing it with a very heavy bent towards technology and innovation and, and kind of what I would consider like the modern battlefield. Um, is that enough to help us? Like, do we just need 10 more Andorils and, you know, we'll be in a much better place and, and we'll be good to go? Or is this something that we're going to need public and private sector, both working together along with politicians and getting funding and like, like how complex and, and like systems level is it versus, hey, we just need, you know, two more Palmer Luckies and like, we'll be good to go. That's a really good question, Anthony. And I, I should say, I mean, I have a lot of friends at, at Andoril and admire a lot of what they're doing, but I think we're going to need systemic change. Um, uh, that's probably going to involve, frankly, and I don't have, I, I'm thinking, trying to think through this. I mean, one of the critiques I get is like bridge, you say we need to revamp and overhaul our defense industrial base, but what do you mean? And my response is kind of like, well, I, I mean, I, we're a two person organization. I don't have like 50 analysts working under me. Um, I think the main thing is there are plenty of people who could do that if we get the political will to dive into that problem. Others are going to be better equipped than I to come up with it. So, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a better answer to that. This is, I mean, I've been calling for a national mobilization of our defense industrial base for over a year at this point, since it became clear that with the Ukraine war, that we were going to heavily deplete our stockpiles and that things were going to go south probably in other places as well. Um, the reason I think that we're going to need more like a national enterprise level, I think that's a good way of, of, of putting it in that, in that kind of commercial way is because, um, these are not minor changes that we're going to need. What we're seeing in Ukraine, I think very vividly, is drones are going to be really important. AI is going to be really important. New networking is going to be really important. But actually, 
the battlefield in Ukraine probably wouldn't be that unfamiliar to a, a soldier fighting on the Western Front in early 1918. I mean, the drones, and that's largely because both sides are exploiting technology. And a lot of it ultimately, and, and so they often tend to cancel each other out or, or they adapt to each other. And so what becomes really important are numbers, attrition, and uh, the way you employ the force and then the advantages of position and resolve and so forth. So it's like, it's more old fashioned. In that world, tr legacy platforms, as they're called, can be very useful. Um, it depends on how they're how they're fitted together in what's called force employment. But what this says to me is we're going to need, need to be able to, you know, look, if 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 we and the Chinese get in a battle and we both sink each other or whatever, we're going to need to be able to produce as much as we did. And the thing that worries me about this is I think a lot of us, even though we know there's been deindustrialization over the last generation, we sort of have in our mind that we can always pull a World War II. Here's the scary thing. In some ways, we are more like the Japanese and China's more like America in 1941. Why do I say that? And I'm saying, I mean, I'm saying it for effect a bit. It's not a perfect analogy because Japan was 10% our economic size and we're a peer of China. But Japan in 1941 had an exquisite standing military. It had had some of the best naval aviators in the world, an incredible Navy, submarines. They figured out how to work torpedoes in shallow Pearl Harbor. Very, in, the zeros like schooled us all over the Pacific for the first six months to a year. Here's the problem. We basically killed all those people. They killed a lot of our people, but then we had the world's largest industrial base. So we pr produced a hundred more aircraft carriers and we produced thousands of aircraft and other ships and submarines and torpedoes and bombs and blah, blah, blah. And we just overwhelmed them. And unfortunately, that's a little bit how the situation is with us. We have an incredible standing military. Although sometimes I worry that not so much the warfighters themselves, but the rest of us take it for granted in terms of hubris. But China's the one with an enormous industrial capacity. I mean, I was struck. This is the Office of Naval Intelligence officially using open sources calculated that the Chinese have 200 times, I believe, the, the shipbuilding capacity we do. And now, uh, you know, Senator Dan Sullivan on the, on the floor of the Senate said recently that, that the intelligence community estimates that China may be actually spending roughly equivalent to us, depending if you kind of net it out. So this is the real, um, this is the real problem. I think what we're going to need is probably more direct government intervention, maybe even taking over certain parts of the functions, making very clear to contractors, et cetera. I think we're going to have to waive a lot of the regulations, environmental, labor, whatever, to get the kind of workforce we need, train it up, heavy investment up front. The thing I would say is that, I mean, I, obviously the national security hawks are going to like this. But I also think a lot of the people who want to reindustrialize our country should like this too. And you can't do that without an upfront investment. And we have a compelling national need. There's going to be a buyer, not only ourselves, but if we can, if we can churn out stuff like we used to, we had 30 defense primes in the, in the 1980s, then we can supply Israel. Then we can supply Ukraine to our heart's content. Then we can supply Taiwan. Then we can supply Japan, South Korea, et cetera. And that's great. And then we don't have to fight all those wars. You know, for instance, Israel right now, I hope not, but they may end up needing something like the airlift that we delivered in 1973. And that was after Vietnam. We had no problem doing that because we had a huge and healthy industrial base. Today, it's going to be tougher, especially given that we've given all these weapons to Ukraine. So when we think about the current conflicts that are uh, transpiring in Ukraine and Israel, um, one of the aspects that I think people – they intuitively kind of feel, but they, they they can't wrap their head around is the p impact on the national debt and kind of the economic strength of America. And so, for example, um, in the last month or so, we have seen the national debt grow by over $500 billion. We're now over $33.5 trillion of national debt. And I think that there is a path here, and it's a possible path, not a guaranteed one, uh, where we continue to fund uh, both through direct monetary contribution, but also weaponry, et cetera, uh, the war in Ukraine. We then get involved with Israel and Hamas. Um, and maybe there's even a world where, you know, with China, Taiwan, and, and kind of some of the stuff we were talking about, there's more need for weapons and monetary support, et cetera. Now, Janet Yellen, uh, Treasury Secretary, was recently interviewed, and she said, don't worry about it. We can afford to fund two wars. Um, how should we think about the pressures of the U.S. economic strength and the national debt? as it either reinforces or contradicts our geopolitical strategy? Like, are these people thinking about, hey, what is the impact on the national debt and, and on our economic strength? Or are these two completely separate worlds and they're not even aware of each other to some degree? Well, um, 
I was very disturbed by Yellen's comments, which and and had the, there's a sort of blasé attitude towards the situation that really worries me. I am not an economist. I am a person who believes there's no free lunch in life. You know, I mean, if the kind of core of being a realist at some level is like there are you're going to pay somehow, and the notion that we can borrow, you know, just enormous amounts of money, including in peacetime, without there ultimately being some feedback. Again, I'm not an economist, it just doesn't strike me as credible. That, that's going to show somehow. And my understanding, and you and your listeners would be better equipped to comment on this than I, but like my understanding is interest rates are starting to creep up and there are indications in the bond market as well. I know the journal has been reporting. I mean, Greg Ipp had a column uh, a week or two ago pointing this out, that there are early warning signs. And it's like, well, you know, you spend a few trillion here and there on COVID aid and like other things, and you run huge deficits, it's going to start to pay off. And I mean, I, I guess, and this is somebody pointing this out, Yellen, I guess, ignored this, but like interest on the debt is now going to exceed in the coming years our defense budget. I think it's even going to exceed like social security payments. And it's it's only going north, right? Or south, I guess. It's going not going in a good direction. Um, and so I, I just, that that has to matter. And I mean, one of the things that, I think is important. I mean, this is more of a policy issue, but I think it, it it ramifies to everybody is there's a tendency like, look, I'm a big fan in a lot of ways, of the Wall Street Journal op-ed page, but, um, and I've written there over the years, but the journal op-ed page will say these days that um, there's no trade-off. It's a false choice. We can do all of this stuff, but you know, this is the same journal op-ed page that's warning us about the consequences of massive borrowing. Right. I mean, there was a very interesting op-ed by I think George W. I think it was Glenn Hubbard, George W. Bush is one of his economic guys saying we cannot afford to borrow anymore and we can't raise taxes. And I I, I don't know on the margin, but that's right. I mean, you basically raising defense spending is going to be painful. And I mean, I think it's very obvious that large numbers of people don't want to cut Social Security and Medicare. Um, and I mean, both President Biden and President Trump are opposed to it. I saw in the journal, I think, yesterday or today that our healthcare system or retirement system is ranked low in the OECD. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what the right answer is, but what it, what it says to me is like, it, we're not just going to spend our way out. And when people compare our situation, we just need Ronald Reagan. Look, I'm a big Ronald Reagan fan, but Ronald Reagan was coming in and things were pretty bad in those days, but like much lower levels of debt, you know, a, I think a considerably probably better economic and demographic profile in terms of youth and so forth. Um, a lot more in, 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 in a stronger industrial base and so forth. So um, I, I think that is a really, a very, very serious issue. And I think there needs to be more attention to it. I do think we're going to have to spend more on defense and they could do the things that, kind of things on our defense industrial base. But the first thing is like, if you have a drinking problem is step one is acknowledge your problem, right? And so when Janet Yellen's out there being like, ah, <laughs> no problem. That that's like that's what really worries me. You got somebody who's like up at coming in home at three at night, completely blottoed, and is like, oh, I don't have a drinking problem. Like that's that's when you really know that that person has got a, a trouble, and that's and that's going to affect uh, affect all of us. We've been talking a lot about conflicts elsewhere. Um, if you look at the rhetoric that is being used, given the southern border, uh, Trump building a wall. Biden, not so interested, it seems like, in doing so. Um, there is talk that, you know, we have this migrant crisis all the way to the other extreme and would describe it as an invasion. Um, how does the southern border and the influx of people who are coming into the country play into what we're talking around geopolitics and kind of, again, economic strain, I think, you know, is kind of how I think about it. Yeah. How does that play into this? That's a great question. I mean, look, I'll, you know, cards on the table. I think we should have a secure Southern border. I support a wall. Like, I think we should be able to secure our border and decide who comes in. And I generally am in favor of less immigration. I would want more skilled immigration. We could move towards something like what the Australians and have, for instance, that would make more sense to me. I mean, look, we're at we're at unprecedentedly high levels of a foreign-born population. I think maybe in around the turn of the century, last century, there was this, or two centuries ago, there was this level. But like, you know, that's when the assimilation process needs to needs to take some time and space. Um, on the other hand, we do need like skilled workers and so forth. And I'm not an expert on immigration, but I think that kind of model, but I I just don't really understand why we wouldn't wouldn't want to have control of our southern border. Like that just seems and I think. You know, first, second of all, 
like fentanyl is, a, I mean, it's killing 100,000 Americans a year. Now, it's not like, I mean, they have some agency, but like it's a horribly addictive and lethal drug. Um, and if we can try to stem that flow a bit, we should do so. That is a national security issue. If it's killing 100,000 Americans a year, like we should be trying to, so so that's like, a, that should be a priority. Now that that doesn't necessarily trade off against our other interests, but it's something that we should treat seriously and with respect and more than respect, we should really do something about it. Now, part of that's treatment, part of that's dealing with the Mexicans and blocking the Chinese and the border. It's a multi-pronged thing, but I, you know, that's something I've been trying to think through a little bit more thinking about the defense and national security elements of it. But I think it's something we should be doing. I think more deeply, Anthony, I think there's this sense that a lot of Americans, you know, I'm a Republican, I think particularly kind of, you know, a lot of the the new right, if you will, people who are against the establishment, I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, there you always have an establishment, but I don't think our establishment in the last generation did a very good job. I mean, we had two failed wars in the Middle East, you had a financial crisis and deindustrialization of the American economy. And now we're in a situation where China might beat us in a war. Like, how do we get from, from 2000, balanced budget, unparalleled uh, strength in the global economy, pretty healthy economy, low crime, pretty good. Like, I remember, you're, we're probably around the same age. I remember September 2000, and, or no, summer of 2001, the biggest issues I can remember in the news were this poor Chandra Levy, who was killed in, in Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C., shark attacks like in Nantucket, and um, stem cells. Those are the problems we had then. And now we've got a lot bigger problems. So I think people are justly dissatisfied with what our established powers have done over the last. Um, and I think part of that is on the border, people feel that there isn't a seriousness about addressing this issue, especially border states, but throughout the country where it's like, hey, this is a huge issue and it's being imposed on us. And um, and that's why like the, the, the Ukraine, it's not logically a trade-off against Ukraine. But people can see that Washington, D.C. and the elite areas and and these kinds of things, they're very concerned about Ukraine. And they can see that those areas are not very concerned about the border. And so I think that's where that linkage kind of comes from, is to say, hey, why don't you take my concerns seriously? <laughs> and, um, you know, so, so uh, you know, that that's sort of my approach to that, that set of issues. When we see China kind of playing this out. Obviously, uh, if you study China for five minutes, you know that they have these very, very long time horizons. They're very patient. Um, If I had to sum up the concern I have, it would be that China will allow the United States to bleed themselves dry and it's death by a thousand cuts. Is that a good summary of kind of where, you know, what, what we're facing and what we need to kind of be vigilant against playing into? Yeah, I, I think exactly. I mean, the Chinese are not, look, I mean, they're not like um, uh, super strategists, like they're so much better than we are. They're not like, they're human beings, they make mistakes. But I do, I agree with you that they tend to have a, lo- a longer term orientation and be sort of more eye on target and ruthless. Part of that is, I think, because we have gotten hubristic over the last generation where we just like what Biden said, we're America, whatever. Whereas the Chinese actually come from a place of humiliation and they've like really struggled to get up the ladder. I mean, a lot of their wounds were self-inflicted by Mao Zedong, for instance. But um, but they they you know, it's sort of the it's the attitude of the guy who's coming out like came, come up the hard way and knows what it what it entailed. And we're sort of like the. The guy's had, you know, been on top for for his whole life, sort of thing, or for as long as anyone can remember. Um, the only the only difference I'd have with the death of a thousand cuts, I think there's a thousand cuts. Then there's the knockout blow. There, there. I think what they're doing is, I don't know. I mean, it's not an exact analogy, but what was Muhammad Ali's thing against? You know, I mean, it's not. This is actually not a good analogy, but it's basically like wearing us down, wearing us down, dulling us. Get, you know, we're kind of tired, we're distracted, and then boom. The knockout blow, because that's the only way you're going to do it. I don't think we're in a thousand. I don't think a thousand cuts alone is going to do it. And that's what they're preparing. They're preparing their military for a knockout blow. Now, one other question I have is uh, maybe like the quality and dependability of our intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'll give you a couple of examples. And, and part of why I'm interested in asking you is I believe that you sat on the Iraqi WMD commission. I was a staffer, uh, kind of the yeah, but I, I, yeah. Yeah, I worked full time. And, and so just yeah. like, like like you've yeah. seen kind of the, the good, yeah. the bad, and, and kind mm-hmm. of all the intricacies and, and, and all this stuff, right? And, and so um, 
The attack by Hamas in Israel, I think there's a lot of people saying, like, how did all of these intelligence agencies miss it? At the same time, uh, if I think back to Russia, Ukraine, there was, you know, half the people saying they're not going to do it. There was half right. people saying they were going to do it. Um, we and we were have... saying that they were going to lose. Remember that we t- we take a lot of credit now, but we got that part wrong. So anyway, go ahead. It, well, and, and and I think that now we have all these amazing technologies, right? There, there's right. satellite imagery and like like all these things that were like, oh, this is amazing. How do you look at maybe our ability to provide and capture this intelligence that actually gives our leaders the information they need to make good decisions? Like if you have bad information, right. you're going to make bad decisions. And so where do you think we are on that front? Sure. So my general view, and I wrote about this, I mean, 15, 20 years ago now, uh, if people want to go back and see, I mean, I tend to actually be more lenient on the intelligence function because Yes, of course. Yes, they make mistakes. But bear in mind, what we ask intelligence to do is it's not like, hey, you know, who's going to win the, you know, the Super Bowl. It's like what is like inherently uncertain problems that are that are where where an adversary with an incentive to dissemble and dissimulate and deceive is going is is operating and how how they might behave towards us. And the thing that I think um, and and so surprise or at least not complete surprise, but what I would think of as like operational level surprise is sort of endemic in the system. In the same way that probably in markets, it's like, you know, there was plenty of information in 2008, you know, but like it was people weren't acting based on the warnings, right? That's really the problem more. So so Israel probably picked up a lot of the indicators that in retrospect can be put together. And this is even going back to Pearl Harbor, the signals and noise issue is, um, you know, Look, technology doesn't solve everything because the enemy knows that we have these technologies and then they act accordingly. So, for instance, Hamas, apparently, from what I read and I mean, surmising, they weren't using phones or they may have spoken on phones that they thought would be tapped in ways that could deceive the Israelis because they're not they're smart, unfortunately. And similarly, with like, you know, with China, I think what we need to worry about, and this is important for market actors, if people are thinking like, oh, I'm going to have a lot of warning if China moves towards an invasion of Taiwan. Uh uh-uh. uh, because what they're going to do, in fact, they've already been doing this. They're trying to normalize and essentially hide in plain sight. So they're creating, they're making it hard for us to distinguish what's like a real indicator from what's it just noise. And I mean, if you go back, it's a little bit, it's getting along. It was 50 years ago, unfortunately, now there's the anniversary, um, is the Yom Kippur War. But, you know, the Yom Kippur War was a war that happened, the attack began. We already had satellite imagery, we already had the ability to listen in on you know arab uh, egyptian and, and syrian communications and so forth presumably but we were still surprised why well because partially because the egyptians did a bunch of exercises and then didn't attack and so the israelis said no nah, they're just doing another exercise and we believe them you know we went all kind of along with them as i understand it, and i'm sure we had a similar view but that's the kind of problem where where surprise is still and so i don't think we ever get because the enemy is adaptive and your adversary is adaptive. And if they're weaker, they're going to adapt in certain ways. If they're stronger, they're going to adapt in other ways, et cetera, depending on what their goal is. I think we should assume that intelligence is always going to be an imperfect, really more of like an art probably than a science, uh, because of these inherent challenges that it faces. My last question for you is, um, if you had to pick one or two actionable things that the United States could do in the next, you know, 90 to 120 days. What what do you think would be the two most impactful things that we could do to better uh, address the China issue, but also kind of improve our standing on the global uh, stage in terms of some of these conflicts? So what it's funny you mentioned that I've been thinking about that recently. And the answer I give is actually pretty much what you say, because a lot of this, again, if we get back to this about the military balance and it's about for want of a shoe, the kingdom was lost. It's very hard for me from the outside. That's a sort of a technical military question. And a lot of it gets into classified information I don't really have access to or I don't have access to. So what I would say is if I were empowered or I were advising the king for a day or for a year or a couple of years, I would say, I want to answer the, the question that you just asked. What are the things that I can do now I can do right now going forward that will help make sure that I can d- defeat a Chinese invasion of Taiwan today, tomorrow, six months, a year, five years, 10 years. And I want to do all those things. And I'm going to empower the people who genuinely bring me solutions. I'm going to sideline or even fire and make examples of people who slow roll that. I mean, I'm just not to name names, but there's this guy, Frank McKenzie, former Central Command commander, 
big guy who was trying to undermine this approach, who's now out in the public talking about how we need to get back in the Middle East. That's the kind of person I would say, no, that's not what we need. I'm going to reward people. And I'm going to, do we need to call, do I need to call the president to waive, to say, activate the Defense Production Act, uh, waive regulations on the environment, on labor, on blah, 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 whatever, you know, uh, the federal code. I'm just, I, we need to get this done like yesterday and I'm not going to let it stand in the way. And that is sort of, that is what I would do. And I think that kind of urgency um, and, and, and credible signal of priority, because I think a lot of what's going on right now is people see the gums flapping that they don't really believe that that's the priority. What's the priority? Ukraine was the priority. If you solve the Ukraine problem, you got kudos, you know? And now maybe if you're helping on the Israel problem, that's how you get kudos. And so it's constantly going to the back of the back of the line. And again, who benefits China? So that that would be my um, that would be the way that I would go. I, I, I continue to believe we are pressing our luck, but I continue to believe that um, we can deter a Chinese attack, because if they think they are going to fail, I don't think they're going to do it. Bear in mind that Mao Zedong never attacked Taiwan, despite wanting to, because he knew he would fail. So I, I believe it's possible, but we are really pressing our luck and the hour is extremely late. Where can we send people to find you online or find the book? Sure. Well, thanks a lot. I mean, the book is called The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in the Age of Great Power Conflict. Uh, it came out two years ago, but actually I was talking to my editor earlier today. I think it's actually more relevant now than it was then. Um, so I think uh, hopefully of interest you can find on Amazon or at, at Yale University Press. I'm on Twitter or X at, um, at Elbridge Colby, my name. And then uh, I, uh, my partner and I run a, a nonprofit uh, focused on great power competition called the Marathon Initiative. I have all my appearances and everything there, uh, articles I've published, et cetera. If people are, haven't had enough, if they want some more, <laughs> they can go there. Bridge, I really appreciate it. I'm uh, uh, thinking a lot about this right now. I think many people are. And, and so your perspective is not only, I think, enlightening and, and kind of informative, but also um, th there's an element of uh, positivity and optimism of like, hey, it, it, the story's not over yet, right? There is exactly. still things that we can do, which, which I think is important as well. So yeah. I appreciate your time and we'll definitely do it again in the future. Would welcome that, Anthony. Thanks a lot. <laughs>